Book Choice is brought to you by Exclusive Books, celebrating getting more books to more people. It's April and we're between seasons with winter heading our way soon. And if you're in between books too, you've come to the right place. Welcome to Book Choice on Fine Music Radio with me, your host, Paige Nick, sponsored by Exclusive Books. We have an hour ahead with some great book reviews and awesome author interviews to help you decide what to read next. Beryl Eichenberger starts us off. William Boyd recently brought out a huge new read, which has had readers going crazy over it. It's called The Romantic. What did you think of it, Beryl? I'm a great William Boyd fan. Reading the author's note gives a sense of the background to a story. In William Boyd's The Romantic, that note is right up front. It gives the impression that we're going to be introduced to a biography of one Cashel Greville Ross, 1799-1882, based on material that came into the author's possession some years ago. Around a 100 pages of handwritten reminiscences, dated December 1881, along with tied bundles of letters received, drafts of letters sent, some little sketches, maps and plans, some photographs, some published books filled with notes and marginalia, some small paintings, etchings and silhouettes, scattered papers and a few objects. You be forgiven for thinking. You are about to meet a little-known, real-life person. So prepare to be destabilised. Because Boyd's talent is in the crafting of characters so utterly believable that you're duped into thinking this is a genuine person. Master of the whole life genre, his enormously fertile imagination creates these characters that demand to be flesh and blood. He enriches this world of fiction and the addition of footnotes, which you will read, plans and sketches takes the biography forward with deliberate pace. But a word of warning, do not rush to Google for verification. The Romantic is a picaresque novel, a swashbuckling story written in a style reminiscent of the 19th century, where the myriad of escapades and cities pulse to life as we move across the globe. From County Cork to London, France to India, on to Italy, the United States, Zanzibar, Africa, Germany, Austria, as Cashel takes himself where his heart dictates. History lives well within these pages. Boyd is an excellent researcher. He inserts his character into groups of historical characters, creating lively scenes where the reader is the voyeur, relishing in some of the more bawdy antics of the times. Details become indelibly printed on your mind. Rich, amusing, enchanting, intriguing, Cashel lives through a 19th century of change. As outside latrines move to indoor flushing toilets, horses give way to steam trains. As letters evolve to the faster telegram and fashion becomes less elaborate, we follow his highs and lows, fortunes and misfortunes, and romantic liaisons as he reinvents himself to suit his current situation. I was reminded of... One man in his time plays many parts, and our Cashel certainly does that. But with a plum and panache, this is a thoroughly likeable man, even when he's vagabonding. But let's give you a small taste of this life. Brought up by his aunt, Elspeth Sutar, a tragic accident had seen the demise of his parents, Orphan Cashel lives in the cottage on the country estate of the almost invisible Sir Guy Stilwell in Ireland. As governess to Sir Guy's two daughters, Cashel also receives an excellent education, but is still part of the hired help as society dictated. When the girls' education is complete, they move to Oxford. 
Elspeth instructs him on the new circumstances. He will be Cashel Ross. Elspeth will be his mother, and will be known as Mrs. Pelham Ross. And she's pregnant. Mr. Pelham Ross, who would visit between his business trips abroad, is to be addressed as father when he visits. The young Cashel takes this calmly, but when he discovers that Ross is actually his father, Sir Guy, all this subterfuge is hard to digest. His life has been founded on lies, and so his adventure begins. He lies himself into the army as a drummer boy at fifteen, and is injured at Waterloo, which holds some weight in his future activities. He is shipped out from his tenure in India and moves through Europe to Italy. He finds friendship with Shelley and Byron in Pisa, only to discover that Byron is a terrible snob. But it is the lovely Raffaella in Ravenna who captures his heart, and for more than fifty years their paths intermittently cross. His love never diminishing. While not rich, he is that chameleon man who moves with ease through the class system, taking on the roles of soldier, author, felon, farmer, father, and lover as the years roll on. In an interview, Boyd says he uses this genre to show how powerful fiction can be, to push it into the realm of real, and maintains the best way of explaining human predicament is in a novel. I would agree. The Romantic by William Boyd is published by Penguin Viking. Beverly Ross Miller is up next, bringing a little bit of Karoo magic. This month, Beverly has three wonderful-sounding books to share with us: Karoo Roads One, Karoo Roads Two, and Karoo Roads Three by Julian Detoy and Chris Murray. Falling in love with the Karoo may be a baffling notion to those who have only experienced it from the inside of a car during the long, dreary trek between Johannesburg and Cape Town. For that endless stretch of tarmac deadens the natural mystery of this ancient hidden world. So to really appreciate it, you need to go off the beaten track, spend time in the multiple charming and eccentric villages and towns and farms, and talk to those who live and love and dance and sing of the charms of this enormous natural wonder. On one trip years ago. When my daughter was a young schoolchild, we were driving from some place to some place else, more than a hundred kilometres of not a single living thing in sight. When she suddenly asked me, "What do people mean when they talk about population explosion?" Yarnia, as they say, the gifted duo of Julian Dutoy and Chris Murray have produced three enchanting volumes titled Karoo Roads One. Two and three. Every page and every photograph is captivating. Every route they describe fills me with a longing to see it all again. These three volumes are not meant to be tour guides, but rather to reveal the character and fascination of the old stories and way of living that thrive in this wonderful landscape, where Olive Shriners stay in the tiny village of Marquisfontein, to the starry landscape of Sutherland. Where the great Afrikaans poet M. P. van Veeklo developed his unique poetic style, from the dance reels and the jokes and the songs sung by the farm workers on his family farm, Hunsfontein, there we have stood inside the old cobbled house in the veld, with its exquisite beehive structure, and thought about the people who once roamed the veld and whose markings, paintings, and etchings can still be found. We've played the rock gongs at Nelsport, the bell-like sounds ringing and singing into the landscape, in which beautiful etchings of animals cover the rocks, while other boulders are rubbed smooth by the rhinos and animals of old before they were hunted out. 
we spent time with the Karoo's famous pilgrim, the late Otto Lapis, who invited us into his shack with the grace of a prince and offered us ripe red tomatoes as a gift. No one could have been poorer than that remarkable artist, some of whose embroidered tapestries hang in our home, as they do in some of the world's art museums. Everything is valued, very little discarded, and nothing is more valued than water. When South Africa's mother dam, the Kharip, on the Orange River overflows, then it's boom time, and water tourists flock to see this life-giving marvel, the great gushes of water pouring out as a blessing into the dry earth. There are local shops that stock useful and eccentric items, and the bars, each with their own history and quirks, the one at Norval's Pont on the far south of the Free State, sports the sign saying Norval's Pont, not as cuck as you thought. True, and with plenty of history surrounding it too. The Karoo offers festivals, dancing, and the annual hotly contested Drat Karoki race in Philipstown, that's a wire car race, and the many, many stories from afar, some of which are true. The gift of waking up in the early dawn to see the long light flood across the silent, still Karoo, the sky pinkening in preparation for the day, or to lie on a stoop next to a herd of fat marina sheep and gaze at the clear, starry, starry sky is priceless. These books, Karoo Roads, will open a new world for you. Buy them and visit as many of its wonders as you can. charming guest reviews up next. Jessie Flash is 13 years old and she's in grade 7 at Grove Primary School. Welcome to the show for the first time, Jessie. Tell us what you've been reading. The book I read is called Cruel Illusions, written by Margie Fuston. 
At the moment, I'm really enjoying horror and fantasy books, so this got me intrigued immediately. This story is about Ava, a young woman who has spent the last few years in foster homes after her mother was killed by vampires, though only she believes that. At 17, she's taken in by a family that her brother, Parker, fits in perfectly with. One night, she stumbles upon a magic show that seems too good to be real, which turns out to be true. Trying to understand how the magicians performed their tricks, Ava sneaks backstage only to discover that they are part of an ancient society of magicians with real magic in their blood, and Ava has it too. Taken in as their apprentice and enchanted by the young man Xander, she agrees to join them at the competition of magicians that year and hopefully earn a chance to become an immortal. Another young man with his own apprentice tries to warn her off the idea, but she ignores his warning, knowing that by following this troop, she'll have a chance to learn more about her mother and get revenge against the vampires who killed her. As it turns out, the vampires are magicians who wanted more. Vampires are blood magicians who used blood to feel their magic and now have to live on that blood to survive. The magic system itself relies on belief. The magician creates a show, one where the audience must believe in what they're seeing, and that is what fills up the magician so that they can do their real magic. Then they use that magic to hunt down and kill vampires. The story focuses on the ominous competition as it turns out that anyone who doesn't bring a suitable apprentice doesn't just have their troop dissolved but forcibly removed, maybe even have their memories taken like the failed apprentices. The apprentices realize that they are fighting for only one spot against each other. The competitions are often a surprise, with the apprentices blindly guessing what they need to do. Between these competitions is where the character growth is, where we get the twists and betrayals, where the love triangle grows and secrets are revealed. Ava is thrown into problems which she never thought she'd face and put in situations that neither choice will have a good outcome. I would recommend this book to young teens who love the world of magic, fantasy and suspense. It is well written with lots of descriptive passages, succeeding in making me feel like I was transported into the book. Margie Fuston is also the author of Vampires, Hearts and Other Dead Things. Thank you for listening to my review. I hope you enjoy the book. And now her sister, Gabrielle Flash, is up next. She's 10 years old and she's in grade 5 at Grove Primary School. Hi, Gabrielle. We're very much looking forward to your review. The book I read was called Worst Week Ever, Monday by Eva Amores. This is the first book of a series which follows the main character through his worst week ever. The book is about Justin, who's 12 years old. He moves to his dad's house and the worst things start happening to him. I mean, his mom marries a guy who he thinks is Count Dracula and his dad drives a giant toilet, which is super embarrassing for him. So what could be worse? I thought that the book was very funny and wacky and had odd things that I never expected to be in a book, like when his gran had to crochet a pair of swimming shorts for him or when he had to use socks as toilet paper because there was none. I would highly recommend this book to anyone who enjoys reading really funny books about young people getting very embarrassed. You know, we urge our listeners, if you're a parent or a grandparent or an auntie or uncle or godparent, please consider picking up a book for the kid in your life. Reading just makes for better adults. You're tuned into Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books, with me, your host, Paige Nick. You can find every single title we've mentioned on today's show at your local Exclusive Books, 
And if you've missed any of the titles our reviewers have mentioned, you can download the podcast on fmr.co.za. Anthony Friesen is here now to tell us about the Boer invasion of the Zulu Kingdom. It's a new book by Professor John Leland. Hello, Anthony. Not so long ago, we were taught at school that in 1836, Dutch farmers, known as Wurz, decided to leave the Cape, then under British rule, and trek north and beyond. We were told, or taught, the land was unoccupied. Move on two years, and Pitra Tiff and his band of fur trackers met with the Zulu king Dingane at his royal capital Mgunguntlovo, the place of the elephant, in what is now known as KwaZulu-Natal. A treaty was signed giving the Boers land to settle on. Then the perfidious Dingan shouted, Kill the wizards! Retif, including his son, a hundred men and servants were all killed. Then Dingan turned his impis on other trackers at Blokrans at nearby Boer encampments and killed all the men, women and children. On the 16th of December, 1838, from inside their well-constructed lager of ox-wagons, the Boers under Andris Pretorius confronted the Zulu impis at the Battle of Blood River and decisively defeated them. Pretorius had prayed to God to grant them victory over the godless Zulus in a binding covenant with God. After all, they were the chosen servants of the Lord in a just and holy cause. Reading Professor John Laban's The Boer Invasion of the Zulu Kingdom 1837 to 1840 provides a very different history. To quote from this excellent book, Blood River was a triumph of Christianity over barbarism and embraced it as an unmistakable sign of the favor in which God held their nation. The battle thus affirmed the God-given right of the Afrikaners to rule over the Africans they defeated, and out of this stirring foundation arose the ideology of apartheid. And so the mythology grew, and it became the accepted account for the majority of white South Africans. To quote John Laband again, By according the two sides, as even awaiting as I can, I hope that even if the result does not secure a measure of ever-elusive reconciliation among readers, it will at least promote a better level of understanding. In this, John Laband succeeded quite superbly. This is an engrossing book, bringing an entirely new perspective on the Boers who left the Cape, a disparate group, even divided in their attitude to their religion. We were never told that the trackers weren't all white. No mention of the blacks, so-called coloreds and koi, who were part of the great track. That wouldn't have fitted in with the mythology. Laband goes into fascinating detail of the Boers' mode of dress, the ox-wagons, the Osavar, that they travelled in. John Laband's extensive knowledge of Zulu society and its structure and make-up of their army, the impis, and their battle tactics add still more fascinating detail to the book. The depth of knowledge, the research that is contained in this excellent book, does not make it a difficult read. I found it engrossing, two cultures coming together from totally different directions, ignorant and distrustful of each other. With questionable motives, perhaps the end result was inevitable. The Boer Invasion of the Zulu Kingdom, written by John LeBand, published by Jonathan Ball, available at all leading bookstores at 290 Rand. 
it should be required reading for all South Africans. I can't recommend this book highly enough. on Fine Music Radio. That was Michelle by Lennon and McCartney, played by saxophonist Mike Lartz, who is a regular here on Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, which is sponsored by Exclusive Books. I'm sure you know this by now, but all the music on our show is selected and compiled by Dave Wood and Rick Everett. So we send our greatest musical thanks to you guys. The show wouldn't be the same without your incredible musical ear. We have three massive author interviews coming up next. The first is with South African icon Aviva Pelham, and she's chatting to Philip Todras about her new memoir. Aviva, we're really honored and excited to have you on the show. Aviva Pelham, My Musical Odyssey. That's quite a title, Aviva, and you're going to have to tell us a little bit more about this incredible odyssey, and I know you started about 71, but maybe you want to go back even before that in your ambition to be on the stage and to be a singer. I actually didn't have great ambition, but what I did have was musicality coming out of every single cell of my body, which is not surprising if you knew my parents, and I I know you did. They were both very musical, and uh, our home was full of music. My two sisters and I took music lessons, and there was always singing in harmony. So from the start, there was this ingredient, which I thought was as important as food and sleep, and uh, this continued right the way through my adolescence with the privilege of being given lessons in instruments and uh, drama. And I felt I wanted to carry that on as I finished school. And the book certainly proves that. And what I want to say about the book is it's not just a biography. It's a wonderful collection to dip into. This is not a book that you just read. It's a book you go back to and forward to and, and pick up the pieces along the way. Magnificent photos. And just congratulations to you for keeping all these incredible records. I wasn't sure what I was keeping them for when my wonderful husband, Paul, kept saying to me, 
did you cut the crit out? Did you cut the photo out? And I kept saying, but what for? And look, it did actually help because I often could dip back in and find some information. And eventually, basically what this is, is just one huge scrapbook. I had 62 and I've now narrowed it down to this one. I really wanted to pay tribute to the people, the artists that I worked with. And when I say artists, I don't only mean singers. I mean designers, directors, crew, costume, lighting, so many important people without whom theatre just doesn't happen. And I hope I've been able to shine a light on their talents. That's very important to me because I think, yes, you're there to create the magic. And that's what people need to go away with. But behind that magic, there are incredible people that do make it happen. Now, tell me a bit about some, perhaps the highlights, because I don't know where to begin. So maybe there are one or two or three maximum that you can just say, well, those were very special times in my life. And you do take us through the highlights, and there have been a couple of lowlights, which have moved you in certain directions. Sure. Really, it's difficult to define the highlights. I'll tell you what will always be one of the most special things in my life, and that is listening to an orchestra warming up. Now, how many of those have I had the privilege to hear? I remember the very first time it was at College of Music, and I was only a second-year student and so grateful to be asked to sing. It was Pierre de Croot who was conducting the UCT Orchestra. I nearly died of joy. I can't explain the terror, the thrill, the responsibility, but hearing an orchestra and knowing you're going to be singing with them, especially because each and every single human being playing in that orchestra has a talent, a rare, unique talent, and they are playing on an instrument that is unique. And it's all very cosmopolitan. And it's for me, it's a mini world. So every single time, and there have actually been thousands, but one of the special ones was the New Year's Eves that they used to have here at Artscape. They were so fantastic. One year was opera and one year was ballet. And I think we have to reintroduce it because it was a happening of of note for the audience and for the performers. That really was so very, very special. Then, of course, I had the honour of playing my mother, portraying my mother in the one-woman show, Santa's Story, and I have some highlights from there, particularly the evening that that I played in her her birth town, which was Hurt or Knapsack. They're in the same sort of area, and the people who came to that performance really just changed my life, their attitude, their wonderful connections that we had afterwards, because music truly is the international communicator, and it doesn't matter what has happened before and what our differences are, because when music happens and we each experience it in our own unique way, somewhere there is a connection that there are no words for. You are certainly connecting. Santa's story was, for me, one of the most moving things I have seen, and I can still get goosebumps thinking about it. So, very special tribute to your mother, whom I also knew very well, and the two of you performing together. I've got to admit, 10 years of working with you in a (laughs) very wonderful way, recreating an interest in Yiddish song. And again, I think you've also had the spirit of wanting to go into areas that perhaps people are not as familiar with, and 
reimagining that for, for other people. I love to do that because the tool, the magic link is music. And so if that is the, for want of a better word, product, if, if that is what I work with, it, it's such a gift for me because half the challenges are over because somebody else, everybody else can find somewhere inside them that link and suddenly we are in a major communication and that is what the world sorely needs now in such turmoil and upheaval. Well, we're going to have to make you sing some more and perhaps you'll bring us all together in a very dramatic and wonderful way because we certainly are looking for solutions and maybe that's one of them. But another solution is picking up a copy of Aviva Pelham, My Musical Odyssey. It's a wonderful tribute to herself but also to the wonderful talent in Cape Town in particular, South Africa in general. But what is going on here to me is so important and a wonderful album of commemoration and tributes. And just the last thing, how many times were you married? On stage, I'm talking about. <laughs> I have been married on stage with an audience 213 times. Do you know how many rehearsals that was? But only one honeymoon. <laughs> okay, so we've been speaking to Aviva Bellum, my musical odyssey. Hi-Lo, sung by Eve Boswell. And you're still tuned into Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books. Twanji Kalula met up with ex-CEO of Samsung in the FMR studios to chat about his life, his career at Samsung, and his new memoir, which is called The Samsung Man's Path to Success, 
by Sung Yoon. So welcome to the show, Twanji Kalula and Sung Yoon. Today you might struggle to find a suburban household without a Samsung phone or appliance. In fact, if you meet a stranger anywhere in South Africa, they are most likely to have a Samsung mobile phone. But that wasn't always the case. Over four years, Sung Yoon led Samsung's expansion in Africa. He's back in the country to promote his memoir, The Samsung Man's Path to Success. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. What made you decide to write a book instead of enjoy your retirement? Well, I, I spent, as you said, uh, over 32 years with the Samsung. And that was all global uh, sales trading experiences. So the last day when I left uh, South Africa after uh, retiring from Samsung, 50 or so of my colleagues came all the way to my hotel to say goodbye. That's 2020. And we had uh, in the middle of COVID. So I, I couldn't see them often, but they were asking me, hey, Song, please write a book and tell our story uh, to outside of South Africa, which is uh, the beautiful memory we have. And those are stories about how we transported from the poor performing company to the world top best award uh, in, in Samsung. And more important story about the unimaginably the potentials in the future of South Africa because I had a, such a strong confidence about South Africa. It's so interesting that you wrote this book and you're so optimistic because we're dealing with a lot of challenges in South Africa. You know, there's load shedding and economic problems. What makes you so excited about the opportunity or the future of South Africa? So look, well, again, when I came over here, uh, I had over 16 years uh, working experience in Samsung uh, Electronics America. So I dealt with uh, world-class customers who were purchasing over uh, $4 or $5 billion. It's it's a big one. So company-wise and as account manager, I did my best to give attention to them and listen what they want. You can imagine that. So I applied exactly the same thing in South Africa when I came over here. Regardless how big or small amount of business uh, we had, I applied exactly the same global, you know, best strategic partnership way. So what I found is the team over here in Samsung, South Africa, when they were understood, if I share all the goals and target clearly and what should be our strategy over and over, their performance was very good. And actually uh, the global top tier uh, performance I'm not kidding. The only thing I realized is they need to be exposed more of the systemized uh, operating process and understand how we can do that strategy. Then they have a really good performance. So that's why from the beginning when I started, I realized, hey, these guys are you know, smart and the, uh, especially young generation from the college. They didn't have experience, but they uh, understood immediately when I explained to them and shared the those things. So that's why I have a confidence. And as you said, we have a low shedding many issues. I have a confidence because I'm doing some contribution for the energy uh, solution in between South Africa and Korea. And one of the things that I really liked about the book um, is that 
you share a lot of lessons and a lot of your failures along the way and a lot of the struggles. Not everybody is going to be a big Samsung leader or a, the leader of a big company, but the lessons are so relatable. What were you hoping readers would take away when you wrote the book? What did you want to share? Yeah, actually, the title is a Samsung Men's Path to Success. But the all, I have a slight over 100 episodes, real episodes. That's all about the challenges, failures at the beginning. And in the middle of the process, uh, more challenges. So that should be Samsung Men's Path to Overcome Failures. But my uh, publisher said, oh, Song, don't put uh, something failures, then it gives a different uh, image. So what I want to tell and share uh, with uh, our readers is, uh, hey, the challenges and unexpected uh, difficulties are inevitable in our life. We don't know. It's, uh, you know, whenever we have those things, I want young generation just confront it without avoid and uh, uh, fear it. Oh, I'm, I'm scared to do that type of thing. Out of 32 years, you know, my life was, if you read this book, it's a kind of miserable situation all the time. Think about $1 billion or $5 billion customer ask something. How you can react? It's, uh, I'll be always kind of freaked out. Oh, yeah, 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 I will check it. It's not say yes. So that's uh, what I did, and I realized by uh, confronting those challenges, there is a lot of learnings which I wanted to share with uh, our readers, and then that will be a great asset at the end of the today. So I want to share those uh, of my experiences with uh, uh, South African readers and have a strong confidence in you and uh, your country too. What was so interesting for me was the special relationship you have with South Africa. So you've traveled the world, you've worked in the US, you actually spent a relatively short part of your time in South Africa in terms of your career, but you really bonded with the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and all proceeds are going to the Nelson Mandela you know, foundation as well um, from the book. And I wanted to know what was it that kind of stuck out to you that made you bond with the country and fall in love with the people of South Africa? Well, yeah, I stayed in uh, South Africa four years. It, it can be relatively short versus the 32 years uh, in, in my whole experience. But that is the latest four years, which means all the experience, the learnings from uh, overseas, uh, America 16 years, other uh, experience. I put everything together in South Africa. And the first day I, I realized, hey, there are a lot of common things between South uh, Africans and the South Koreans. And warm heart and beautiful scenery. And more important thing is both people are passionate to win through the fair competitions. They want to win and put a lot of uh, uh, the invest in their children's education. As uh, South Korea did, when I was born in 1960s, we were the, one of the poorest uh, country in the world next to Heidi. Heidi is uh, still I mean, struggling, sorry, but Korea is now you know, G10-ish. How? Because I saw all the uh, progress and, and the growth by studying and uh, working for a company. And uh, it's a time South Africa probably can learn something from uh, Korea did, which I tried to share uh, while I was here so for four years. And uh, it was uh, pretty uh, easy for me. Oh, this country future is not just what, what it is. So it will take, uh, you know, 10 years, 20 years type of thing. In Korea, at least it took uh, like uh, 30, 40 years. We need time, but we need to 
follow those things and with the great people. One of the greatest, I think, learnings that I took away when I read the book was that you're not someone who sits around and waits for things to happen. Mm -hmm. And I think the world's changed a lot since you started your career. If you were starting your career today, what advice would you give yourself if you were, you know, kind of doing it all over again? When I was writing uh, the book, it's uh, actually the first time out of uh, college, like uh, over 30 uh, years or so, thinking about myself over maybe five minutes. So for those uh, 32 years, I'm not saying that was bad. I always had a new assignment and a goal. And uh, I was uh, thinking how I, I can achieve uh, those goals uh, with a very efficient way with my team and team play. So when I had a lot of free time, uh, started to write a book as I promised with my team. I, I always keep uh, my promise to my team. That's a priority to internal colleagues or outside uh, customers. What I commit I have to execution. So uh, if I go back, right, starting from uh, those days, one thing I, I did good is uh, whichever assigned to me the task or department role, I have never had a question. Right? Is that why Why I have to do that type of thing? I have never think that way. Always thought, hey, how I can achieve uh, this more proper way, efficient way? That's actually I learned from Samsung culture at those days. We didn't have a, a time to look around who made this mistake, pointing fingers. Think about you know, over 20 years uh, uh, being trained in uh, the organization environment. If there is a task, think about how we can achieve it. That's a Samsung culture when I joined. So I don't regret any of those things. But my book said uh, at the beginning, uh, of Samsung career path in my life, I was uh, thinking just uh, two years and uh, start uh, my own business. So still I don't regret because uh, uh, now in my early 60s, now 60 years old, so I have a lot of time to restart uh, and uh, uh, my own business because my father, <laughs> surprisingly, he passed away last year, but he was 95. My mother is uh, healthy, 94, so I have a great gene. Uh, I will start now something I dreamed uh, 30 uh, or years old, the dream when I started. So, no, no, it, there is a all something going forward in, in my mind. Thank you so much for sharing these very personal life lessons. I think at a time when we need to be inspired as South Africans and we need to roll our sleeves up and solve our problems. Um, it's a fascinating book. Um, I think if you work in corporate, they're great lessons for it. Or if you are doing your own business or wherever you are in your life, I think they're just lessons to help you kind of deal with crises, to overcome adversity, and to really take charge of your life. So it's a really refreshing business book to read. So thank you very much for writing it. Uh, the Samsung Man's Path to Success was published by Quella Books and retails for 320 rand. Smile for me, my darling. I'm in heaven when I see you smile.
Diane sung by the bachelors on book choice on fine music radio sponsored by exclusive books with me your host as always Paige Nick we round off the show with a massive coup of an interview a few weeks ago international best-selling author Simon Sebag Montefiore was in the country to take part in the Jewish literary festival Mark Falconer took some time out to chat to the author Now, Mark Falconer has been a teacher throughout his professional life. Among many other things, he's taught literature to high school and university undergrads. We're very, very honored to have you both in the studio today. And a big FMR welcome to both Mark Falconer and Simon Sebag Montefiore. Simon Sebag Montefiore, welcome to Book Choice, Fine Music Radio. It's really lovely to have you here. Great. Well, it's lovely to be here. Great to be in South Africa. Great to be on this station and on your show. Thank you. I wish it was my show, but it's not. Um, and unfortunately, we've only got 10 minutes or so to talk about it. It's such a, lot, a, a lot to talk about. A lot to talk about. <laughs> um, 950,000 years of, of human history. I wonder, could I start with the conclusion? Please do, um, wherever you like. I, I really love the breadth of big histories like David Christensen, um, Noah Harari, Andrew Marr, um, even uh, Stephen Pinker's Enlightenment Now. But your text is something entirely different. It's, um, it tells stories, and you manage to blend the intimate with the, the breadth. It's just so beautiful. Your writing is so um, lucid and deep, and you, you manage to both be human and to give a historical perspective. There's one, one particular passage in the conclusion. Life can only be understood backwards. So that's Kierkegaard's quote. But it must be lived forward. History never dies. History is, is never history. It is kinetic, mutating, dynamic, a deathless arsenal of stories and facts that teach us how humans lived, but also deployed in the causes of today, good and evil, a mission complicated by the Internet, that cesspit, treasure trove and reliquary of hatreds and hobbies, truths and randomness and revels, calumnies and conspiracies. Yet it is our reverence for the legitimacy granted by history that gives it such a lethal, propulsive power. In a, a history of this sort, where you have such a breadth, you seem to manage, which is probably the most difficult, tightrope walking act of all, to balance what seems to be admiration and fondness for humanity with revulsion and disgust at some of the stuff that, we, that we've done over the years. Across this tightrope of a million years where would you if you had to overbalance where would you where would where, on what side would you fall how, how do you see humanity um i love humanity this book is a, of course it's a total indictment of um humanity and our strange nature but it's also a celebration and the book is of course full of i mean it's filled with sort of tragedies and murders and depravities and cities falling and empires collapsing but it's also full of poetry and love and writing and great quotations and songs. So I, I, I sort of think of it as both. And in the end, I, I sort of come down on the side of optimism um, in, that, in that conclusion. But, you know, the, the idea of this book is, you know, just 
is just to have this, the the breadth and um, the breadth and depth and global nature of a of a world history, but also the intimacy, the juice, the grit of biography, mm. and that was the sort of massive challenge that I was trying to um, pull off here. One of your previous interviews asked you what what's next, and you said you were going to do something smaller. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, it would be difficult to do anything bigger, really. Yeah, there's, there is nothing bigger. In fact, I'm sort of I'm going to be recovering from this for some time. So, so don't hold your breath. I was struck by many of the untold stories. There were clearly times when I got the feeling that you wanted to say something, but actually you just it was already big enough, and you'd said as much as you needed to say to link that particular story. Is there anything that you'd want to come back to? Anything, any stories that you thought, now that is something that I haven't come across I before? Mean, I mean, lots of stories I wanted to tell more about and lots of people I wanted to tell more about. But I needed to have some discipline. I mean, obviously, the book is, the book is 1,200 pages long, so I haven't been that disciplined. But, um, you know, basically, for a, it's only the size of the, sort of the average biography of Churchill or JFK or, yeah, yeah. or Stalin is, you know, is much longer than this, you know, sometimes four times as long as this in some cases. So I've actually been very restrained in sort of in what I've put in here. And actually, I've, I've had to, um, to sort of be very disciplined and make difficult decisions. That's what this is all about. Because for me, everything is like stuff that has to go in here is essential and stuff that I want to put in here, which is kind of fun. And once those have both and then stuff that is essential for the narrative to work and the way it's written is a kind of interwoven. It's one single narrative uh, history from beginning to from the Stone Age to the Drone Age, as it were, all linked together and in one narrative, even involving places like America, the Americas and Australia that sort of aren't, aren't directly linked to the rest of the world for long periods. There were, there were some areas that really kind of were outstanding in, in what you were, you know, your, your relationship with Persia, for example, is um, I've never read anything that has been told with such fondness and such insight and such such admiration. One of the themes that also seems to come up is the is the theme of literature and oh, literature and art generally. For example, the uh, Mirasaki. Yeah, those would be wonderful stories to tell. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing is, first of all, you know, I wanted this to be a completely fresh history, and so it's got a lot of stuff that people aren't familiar with. I mean, first of all, it's got the diversity. I mean, Africa is as important in this book as Africa and Asia are as important as. America and Europe, all the way through. Of course, it's also women's history. It's also filled with women, you know, interesting women who have been left out of a lot of traditional histories as well. And then, like you said, it's got a lot of countries and it you know, aren't sort of, aren't massive empires, even in modern times, like Persia, like Iran, which are massively important. And of course, there was an Iranian and Persian empire in ancient times, but this has Persia, Iran, all the way through it. And one of the things I wanted to do with this is not just have a kind of victor's history where it's just yeah. about the British Empire, the Russian Empire, and America and the United States, but it's also got lots of countries that you might not know so much about, like Haiti or Hawaii or Albania or Cambodia, for example, you know. So just to be honest, it's just been such fun writing it, such an adventure, and, um, but also a sort of nightmare. I mean, I didn't really sleep for about three years writing this book, as you can imagine, because every, every time I was going to sleep, I thought, oh, my God, I've, I've got to get, you know, I've, I've forgotten to cover Mozambique enough, you know. <laughs> um, I've got to go back and read up about, the, you know, Frilimo or whatever, and I've got to do the research, because I've got to do it in the morning, because if I don't get this written tomorrow, I won't make my sort of schedule. Because, you know, I had to get it done, so it's been a lot of pressure, but it's a great joy to be traveling the world talking about it. 
better than writing it, I can tell you. <laughs> Your writing is so, uh, it's so dense. Is it is it an anguish to write, or is it is it does it flow? I mean, once you've got your subject matter, does it flow fairly easy? Um, well, the problem is kind of mastering stuff because it's easy. I mean, first of all, anyone can write an unreadable history, and secondly, anyone can write something that no, that is completely wrong about a subject. And it's just repeating every you know conventional yeah. wisdoms, and I wanted to do neither. So, so the struggle was to master the subject and then to sort of actually get it down. And once I, once I started writing it, it flows easily. But I rewrite and rewrite everything to make it as elegant as possible. Certainly the conclusion, I think, should be, it should be something that every single human being reads because it, it's, it gives such a sense of perspective. Thank there you. Was a, there were two interviews that I listened to, um, Simon Brewer and, and Saul David. And as a teacher, I loved your advice on writing. Don't get it right, get it written. Yes. I mean, the key, that's the key to writing is like you, you can't edit something if it doesn't exist. Get it down. That's my advice to all, all prospective writers. As a teacher, you speak of the dark matter of history, um, which is a really wonderful, wonderful quote. What would you say to a class of school leavers now if you had to try and condense the wisdom that you've got from all of this thinking and writing and refining? I think you just, in the dark matter of history... Um, you've just got to judge judge people um, not by any of the ideologies that try and impose a view on on history, but just judge people by the way they treat other people, whatever their colour, whatever their race, whatever their identity. My basic rule in this book has been like everyone counts or no one counts. You know whether it's whether it's Europeans oppressing people of colour in Africa, for example, or whether it's other other Africans oppressing other Africans. I treat everyone the same in this book. That's my aim anyway, and not to make kind of moral judgments that one life is worth, one life or one killer is worse or better than another. So that's my advice about the dark matter of history. Judge, judge it this way. Everyone counts or no one counts. That brings our book choice interview to a close. For the full interview, please go to our podcast, fmr.co.za. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was really wonderful. Thanks Thank for you. having me. As we head into our final track, our thanks go to Rick and Dave for the great music, to Mzu Maketa for building the show, and to Exclusive Books, our dedicated sponsors. We'll be back in two weeks with Book Choice, Publisher's Choice. Until then, we're playing out with Bess, You Is My Woman from Gershwin's Porgy and Bess, played by Oscar Peterson. You've been tuned into Book Choice with me, your host, Paige Nick, and until next time, happy reading.
Book Choice was brought to you by Exclusive Books, celebrating getting more books to more people. The Exclusive Books recommend selection makes it easy. By curating 25 of the most talked about and trending books hitting the shelves, you can, with one glance, get a snapshot of everything hot in the world of books, locally and internationally. Exclusive Books also sell gifts, vouchers, stationery and more. Pop into your nearest Exclusive Books and feast your eyes. For more information or to purchase online, visit exclusivebooks.co.za. 